or look up the passage on your phone. Matthew chapter 2 from verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Hannah, for reading that for us this morning. Uh, my name, as you undoubtedly know, is also Steve, but I happen to bear the last name Young, and so I would appreciate it if I was called Young Steve, but I bear no responsibility for any inference or any other connections you make to another Steve down the track. But as we begin, let me pray and let's dig into God's word. Father God, thank you so much for your word to us. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. 
Please illuminate the parts of the text that we need to hear and help us to apply them to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in addition to giving you my last name, I also want to provide for you some detail, a little kind of nugget about my life, a little insight into who I am and how I think. And one of those is to give you uh, something that I enjoy doing. I've had a few people ask me what my hobbies and things are, and I've had time to reflect on this. And I've realised one of the things I really enjoy doing is watching a particular type of YouTube video where people post their dash cam footage of other drivers in Australia, and they're dedicated to showing terrible drivers all around the place. But the one thing I noticed from a lot of these YouTube videos is, believe it or not, there happens to be a lot of Christians in them, like tons. Uh, there are people who, for whatever reasons, whenever something unexpected happens on the road, for whatever reason, unbeknownst to me, they seem to shout out the name of their Lord and their Saviour. <laughs> and it amazes me just how many people do this, how many people suddenly turn to worship when someone runs a red light or, or kind of doesn't give them way on the roundabout or whatever it might be. The sad thing is, though, that a lot of the people in these videos... Uh, a large proportion of the modern West, uh, and perhaps even some of us sitting in this room as well, we may use the name of Jesus not in the way it's meant to be used. Uh, we use it perhaps to let off a bit of steam, and perhaps some people use it when the unexpected happens, like these crazy drivers on the road. And personally, I do find this a little bit sad, because so often we desperately, desperately need Jesus but then we don't use his name, or the world doesn't use his name the way it was meant to be used. Uh, and very often it's those that do use it regularly as a curse word are the ones that need him desperately. Now what's particularly ironic uh, about all this is that the modern West, we very, very readily accept the Messiah's name being blurted out at the top of our lungs as normal behaviour, and yet in the same breath... We want absolutely nothing to do with this man. I think this is true politically, uh, as Jesus gets squashed uh, out of political discourse. It's true culturally, as the views, morals, ethics, um, behaviours that uh, followers of Jesus adopt are constantly seen as dangerous and increasingly as a threat to society. Uh, and I think this is true personally and individually as well. The world around us essentially wants nothing to do with Jesus. What I find even more amazing, though, is how many people in the West, just to toss it back the other way a little bit, find it easy to talk about religion. We find it easy to talk about God in more general terms. Uh, we find it easy sometimes even to, to pray or talk about prayer and even the concepts of heaven and hell. In fact, recently, since my time here in Launceston, I had a chat with a gentleman who said, look, I don't know where I'm going to be going after this life, but if I end up in hell, I know I'm going to be able to put Satan in his place. Some people are just really open uh, to these ideas. They're open to spiritual chats. In fact, I think the majority of us are when we're pushed hard enough to actually open up about what we really believe the universe is for, what we're here to do. And I think many people are even open to having a Christian flavour in their conversations. So things like heaven and hell. It's not until the person and work of Jesus specifically is mentioned that the topic of conversation starts to get awkward. 
when you narrow down a topic of conversation onto the person of Jesus and push people to go, who do you think he is, then all of a sudden you've crossed a line. I find it very interesting and, and I need to ask the question, why is this? And I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, I suspect mostly driven by the fact that Jesus himself, as we know, is the catalyst, he is the key ingredient which shows the true nature of what's really in our hearts. That is, Jesus is the diagnostic test which reveals where we are really at with God, whether he does accept us or not. And I think this is a very important point to remember because in our own efforts to speak to people about the gospel, as we're called to go out and make disciples, I think it's easy to talk about religion and prayer and all those other things, even, even God in these loose general terms. The hard thing to do, and I think we all know this, is give a clear articulation of the person and work of Jesus and, importantly, the implication of this for our hearers. Because this is what forces the listener to seriously consider where they're really at with God. And so today, in, in today's passage here in Matthew 2, this is what we're going to be exploring, the idea, essentially, that Jesus reveals our hearts. The idea that our spiritual address, as it were, uh, is uncovered through what we think of the person of Jesus. And so here in Matthew 2, what we have is three prime examples of this, three different responses to Jesus, ranging from the Magi, who come to worship him, King Herod, who wants nothing more than to stamp him out wherever he can. And finally, I think the scariest one for myself and for all of us in this room, is we have the religious leaders. These are the people who are clued in, who know their Bible, who can rattle off the scriptures at the top of a hat, and yet they make the mistake of ignoring Jesus and not placing him where he should be in their hearts. So this is where we're headed uh, this is where we're going to be going, and we're going to begin by looking at the Magi who come to worship King Jesus. Now, first of all, the Magi, they're not the noodle company. Uh, they're not even kings, necessarily, uh, which I think is a good thing to remember that we shouldn't be getting our theology or our understanding of the Bible from Christmas carols or other things like that. In fact, we're not even sure that there were three of them. Uh, there is a tradition that names them later on, uh, I can't remember their names, Balthazar and a few others. Um, there are names of these kings, but that wasn't necessarily the names, and it doesn't necessarily mean there were actually three of them as well. These magi, though, to put what they do in simple terms, they are stargazers. Uh, wise men, I think, is an appropriate title to give them if we factor in their worship of Jesus at the end of the story, because I think that is absolutely the wisest thing anyone in this world could ever do. But these magi, their job description, it essentially ranged from dabbling in all kinds of things like astronomy and astrology, which is, you know, the study of the words of the stars, you know, the, the newspapers, they put out your star signs and predict your futures and things like that. This is sort of the stuff they dabbled in. Uh, the natural sciences, they interpreted dreams, which is interesting given how much the word dreams are mentioned in today's passage. These are the kind of jack-of-all-trades when it comes to all things mystical and magical. In fact, the name magi itself is where we get our modern term for magic or magician from. Uh, believe it or not, uh, this is more significant than we might at first realise because magic and div diviners and divination and all of that in the Old Testament, it wasn't particularly seen with a kind 
Uh, it wasn't received well. Anyone who did uh, look at the stars for messages were effectively idolaters in Israel's sight. They were worshipping the creation rather than the creator. And that meant that these magi, essentially to all of Israel, were wicked, awful sinners participating in evil arts. Uh, And we even see this not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament. Whenever this word magi is used, it's almost always in a negative reference. So if you think of Simon the magician in Acts 8, for example. Uh, In the Old Testament, I thought I'd throw up uh, one of the ways that Israel taunts Babylon here. So Babylon uh, are coming in and Israel, uh, sorry, not Israel, Isaiah mocks Babylon with this prophesy, uh, prophecy. He says, all the counsel you've received has only worn you out, saying whoever's informing you, they're doing it wrong. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. This is Israel mocking anyone who practices these arts. As far as they're concerned, anyone listening to the message of the stars, in fact, astrology, it's made up of two words, astral logos, which is star, or the the, the message or the word of the stars. Anyone doing this is an idolater. And as I said, they're worshipping the creation. So they had no part in Israel. Both the practices and the people were condemned. And this is interesting because Matthew then comes along and for whatever reasons he goes, well, you know what would really shake things up is if I show a gospel of grace that is so big and so broad that it welcomes in even these wicked people. Once again, we see Matthew opening the gospel to the outcast, to the lowly, to the wicked. And while, yes, he would condemn their practices, he would never condemn the person themselves. And this, I think, is amazing grace. So in Matthew 2 here, the story goes, we have these magi. They've seen the bright star in the sky in verse 2, and somehow from this, they've come to the conclusion that a new king has been born. But this isn't just any king that has been born. Specifically, it is a king of the Jews. And we find out furthermore that they want to worship. They want to bow down before this new king and pay homage to him. And this is really strange uh, because these two-minute noodle representatives, they're not Jewish. Uh, They're not even close. In fact, they're from the east. And uh, here's something to, to remember when you're reading particularly your Old Testament. The east in the Bible is particularly frequently used as this motive for being distant from God, being far from God. When Adam and Eve are cast out, they head off to the east. The angel guards the east door because that's the way they're going to be coming from if they're returning. So east is almost always this symbolism of distance or separation from God. So this newborn king, he's not their king, but for whatever reason, they're so compelled by this star that they're willing to come in from the east. They're willing to travel a huge distance to see what's going on to worship this king of the Jews. Now, we're not sure why this happens, but the star, uh, it doesn't actually take them to where Jesus is. I don't know if you notice that as, as we're reading. The star doesn't immediately take them to Bethlehem, at least not at first. For whatever reasons, these magi, they end up not in Bethlehem, but just north of that in Jerusalem, the Jewish capital. 
Some think perhaps they lost the star. Some think maybe the star took them there in order to get the ball rolling for what's about to happen. We're not really sure why. We're not exactly told, but we know they end up in Jerusalem. And personally, I think it was just a hunch. They lost the star, I think. And they've gone, well, where are kings of the Jews born and where do they often reign? It's clearly in Jerusalem, the capital. So they end up there in Jerusalem. They put the the bike locks on their camels and they're roaming around the city streets. And they're asking this. They're saying, where is this new king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. I can always picture them at this point sort of running around the city streets, trying to find connections, trying to find people who know what they're talking about, talking perhaps to the apple sellers, grabbing them by the collar and going, where is this king? You know, we need to see him. We have our treasures here. We can't guard them forever. We need to come and worship this guy. And what this does, all this commotion around the streets of Jerusalem, it catches the attention of this guy named Herod. Now, this guy, he doesn't want to worship Jesus like the Magi do, though he pretends like he does, if you notice in there. No, Herod has other plans for Jesus. He has plans to stop Jesus in his tracks. So in summary, the Magi, they come to worship Jesus, and now Herod comes onto the scene, and he wants to kill Jesus. Now, to put a bit of context on what's happening here, Herod, uh, we have to know who this guy is. Uh, This is a guy called Herod the Great. Uh, He's the type of person who, I'm sure we all have friends like this, where they walk up to you with that determined look and you have no idea whether you're going to get a loving hug from them or a punch in the arm. He's that kind of unpredictable man. But he wasn't just unpredictable, he was also really, really clever. Uh, Probably had an IQ off the charts. Because this guy... He moved into action a whole bunch of cool stuff that many people thought were impossible. So he made, for example, a huge man-made port, like a peninsula that went out into the ocean that stretched long out into the harbour. And he did this using this kind of quick, dry cement that could dry in the water. (laughs) 2,000 years ago. I I have no idea. Water, to me, feels very wet. Um, Somehow he could make this concrete dry under there. And this actually still stands, there's still the remains of this today in a place called Caesarea Maritima. You can go see it. In fact, you can probably even Google Earth it and zoom in and still see the remains under the water. He also invented a type of central heating underneath houses, which I heard would come in handy here in winter. He also expanded and refurbished the Jewish temple. And once again, the remains of this are still around today in what you might have heard of as the Wailing Wall. That was Herod's doing. It's still there and it stands as a testament to this king and his accomplishments. He was a type of guy that was very much larger than life and he had this attitude of, well, anything you can do, I can do better. Now, this is all great in some respect. You think, wow, that's amazing. But despite all of this, uh, it wasn't all rainbows and sunshine for Herod because today we very much remember him primarily for his extreme paranoia. And today we get a heavy dose of this later in the passage. You see, towards the end of Herod's life, uh, this man, he became so paranoid about any threats to his power, any threats to knock him off his throne, that he would end up going full mafia on just about anyone. 
And this included his closest family, such as his mother-in-law, even his wife, and two of his biological sons. This man became so wild and unpredictable that one Roman ruler, uh, a man named Augustus, he said that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's because Herod was king of the Jews, and in order to appeal to them, to reach out to them, he went full kosher. So you were, in fact, much safer being a pig, because you know he's not going to kill you for the bacon or the pork or any other delicious meats that the pigs have. No, he's going to leave that pig alone. And so he'd rather be Herod's pig than his son, who he wouldn't. Now, all of this matters. Uh, We have to understand that Herod was given the title King of the Jews. We don't see it in the passage. Where we get this from is uh, an extra-biblical text uh, from a guy named Josephus, who was a historian, who tells us that Herod was actually given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And that's a really important tidbit. We have to know who this man is. Because if we know he's given the title King of the Jews, and we know he's particularly unstable and quite insane that he loves his power and his position so much that even his immediate family aren't safe from his paranoia, then we have to know what's happening when the Magi come on the scene and the first thing they're doing is riling everyone up and going, where is this newborn king of the Jews? This king who didn't even have to pay for his title or inherit his title from someone else, he's just born a king of the Jews. In, in one sense, Jesus now is one-upped King Herod. But more than this is they say, we've come to worship him. There was probably nothing worse that could have been said around the streets of Jerusalem at that moment. In fact, if you look in your Bibles at verse 3, uh, Matthew gives us an insight into how everyone's feeling here. Uh, he says in verse 3 that Herod was disturbed by this news. Uh, which I think is actually a very appropriate word to describe King Herod himself. But more than that, he was disturbed along with all Jerusalem as well. Everyone was very, very worried at this point. You see, when you know who we're talking about here, it's not hard to imagine that all the residents of Jerusalem, they know what Herod's capable of, they've seen him do what he does, and they're freaking out, they're going, Magi! Like, keep it down here. Don't don't ever say there's a new king of the Jews. My goodness. And meanwhile, the Magi are going, hey, Jerusalemites, got any idea where this new guy is? Like, we we need to worship him. You know, we're we're here to find this, this new guy. But ultimately, this ends up an extremely sad story because Herod does exactly what I think the people of Jerusalem were fearing he would. And that is he flips his lid And he goes absolutely nuclear on all the kids in Bethlehem, in verse 16. He tries to eliminate this threat to his power, not by having a pinpoint precision strike on the person of Jesus, but by going, wipe them all out, and hoping that Jesus will be caught up in the collateral. Now, thankfully, this isn't the end of the story for Jesus. Uh, Jesus is spared, once again, as we saw last week, at the hands of a very obedient Joseph. Uh, Joseph is woken in the middle of the night by a dream and he instantly obeys God and he takes Jesus and his mother down to Egypt. So we've seen the Magi who want to worship Jesus. We've seen Herod who wants 
to wipe Jesus out. And this is where I very, very briefly want to touch on the third group here, uh, people who in this story, if you blink, you'll miss them, and that is the chief priests and the scribes from verse 4. And I want to highlight their response to Jesus. Now, the reason these guys are in the story is because Herod, when he heard that there was a baby to be born king of the Jews, uh, he undoubtedly knew that this was going to be some fulfillment of a prophecy. Perhaps he thought he might have been that fulfillment at one point, but now he realises, no, there's something going on here. And so he needed to call in the professionals. That is the big guns. He needed to call in the Bible gurus, the ones who have been to Bible college and they've come back and their heads are brimming with Bible knowledge. And he had to ask specifically, where is it predicted about where the Messiah will be born in the Old Testament? So Herod, he summons these Bible professionals, the uber-religious people, and he asks them this question. He says, where is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, to be born according to the Scriptures? It's a very similar question to the one the Magi were asking, where is this king of the Jews, except they end up in Jerusalem by general revelation. They see a star and God guides them that way. But these guys are guided by the Scriptures to this precise location where Jesus is, the Word of God. And what's amazing, I think, in particular, is that these people, these teachers of the law and the scribes, they didn't need to look up uh, this on accordance. They didn't need to Google it. They didn't need to ask Siri where this prophecy was. They just at the top of their heads rattled off in Bethlehem of Judea. And then what's even more amazing is they back this up with the perfect Bible reference from Micah. They say to Herod, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Yet out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. These guys know their Bibles really well. Without a second thought, they're like, yep, we know where that is. That's the prophet Micah. And not only did they know it, but they quoted it. They knew exactly where it was predicted. These guys were the Bible gurus who knew their stuff. And you have to admit, it's kind of impressive Herod asks, and these guys instantly deliver. But here's the curious thing now. You have to remember at this point, all of Jerusalem is on edge. right? They're all holding their breath. Rumours that this long-awaited Messiah, this new king of the Jews, might be here. That the answer to everything their Old Testament is pointing to might actually be happening. And Herod, not just all Jerusalem, but Herod himself is on edge. He's disturbed by this news brought from the Magi. And yet over here we have the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the ones who rattle off the exact scripture concerning the birthplace of the Messiah, who no doubt knew that Jerusalem was shaking with fear and perhaps some anticipation. You know, is, is this the one? <laughs> is this the Messiah we've been waiting for? And what do they do with this information? Well, we're not exactly told, but it seems like they do nothing. Because in Matthew, they just disappear from the text, never to be seen again. Personally, and this is just a hunch, uh, personally, I think they probably went home. They probably patted each other on the backs for how good their Bible knowledge is, probably thinking, yeah, still got it, you know, I can still rattle off all that stuff. And then they kicked up their feet and cracked open a cold one and watched the AFL for the rest of the afternoon. 
They weren't moved by the word of God. They didn't really trust it. They didn't really believe it even. These men had very little care for the word of God. The very oracles that speak about their saviour and predicted that the Messiah would be born in this little town which is just down the road. They can't be bothered lifting a finger to see if any of this commotion is true. I mean, the least they could do is go see Bethlehem. right? If you have Bibles with those maps in the back and you flip over to, to a map of uh, Jerusalem, you'll actually see just south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. It's not far. It's a short walk south. But instead of even doing that, they just disappear from the narrative. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to see that these guys, the ones who are eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come, the insiders, the kind of regular church-going people, had no concern for Jesus at all. So we've seen the uber-religious people ignoring Jesus. We've seen Herod wanting to kill Jesus. We've seen uh, these powerful outsiders from the East who are far from God, these wise men from the Noodle Company, want to come and worship God, uh, worship Christ, Jesus. And the reason I think these three particular responses are so amazing is because they represent what I suspect is the primary attitudes we see towards Jesus today in Australia. News about this King Jesus in our country. Think of Herod, for example, who wanted to stamp out any mention of Jesus. Well, I feel like even today there are many workplaces that will do anything they can to do this. There are plenty of movements out there who protest and think that the world would just be better off if we just ridded ourselves of Jesus and of the shackle of Christianity. And this has been going on for a long time. It's been a bit of a slow boil. Uh, Easter and Christmas are probably the perfect examples of that. Uh, in fact, I did a bit of research on a church history assignment once many years ago, and I found out that when New Parliament House was being built, there was actually going to be a chapel built inside New Parliament House, and the name on the plans got changed to Meditation Room. And Gough Whitlam, he was famous for saying, well, that doesn't really matter because there won't be any Christians by the year 2000 anyway. Praise God that here we are still. Jesus is being stamped out quickly and deliberately in our society in many ways, a lot of which I think is extremely subtle and yet still very significant. And we need to be aware of that. Another group of people we see today are these uber-religious folk who probably thought that being born and raised in a Christian home or being baptised even, or perhaps even just knowing all the right answers to the Bible questions, well... That makes them impressive in God's eyes. How could God not accept someone who throws themselves into the study of the word and yet at the same time sadly ignore the very thing the word points to? It's a good reminder that we, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible isn't that third member of the Trinity. We worship what the Bible points us to. So it is extremely important, but don't make the mistake of thinking the Bible is the end goal here. Jesus is. It is one thing to read your Bible, it's one thing to go to church, it's another thing entirely to invite Jesus into your heart as king and to have a living relationship with him. These uber-religious people, 
and I've been here myself, they had all the privileges of being brought up in a believing home which taught the scriptures and yet, for whatever reason, they ignore the one that this all points to, even despite the fact that there are red lights flashing in their face, alerting them to the need to bow down before the throne of grace. Finally, this last group, uh, the Magi. These guys, first thing we need to remember, they're not Jews, right? They weren't born in the kind of Christian home. They didn't have the promises given to them. Uh, They probably didn't even have bits and pieces of the Bible to guide them, and yet they sought after Jesus, genuinely wanting to find out more. In one sense, they saw from creation that there must be a creator God. I mean, they saw this star and they followed it. But then in verse 10, pay close attention to this. What did the star do? It rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child lay. They were pointed to the person of Jesus. And in many respects, this is the mission of the church and everyone in it. We are to shine a light on Jesus. We are to point people to Jesus. We are to speak about Jesus specifically, not just God, not just church, not just prayer. We need to talk about Jesus. But another thing we can take away from this passage is is just how to recapture some of this joy in doing this. How to actually ignite our hearts to be on fire for Jesus once again. You see, the Magi, where Matthew depicts them as being filled with this deep and profound joy in verse 10, when they found this star that ultimately pointed them to Jesus. And in many ways, that deep joy that changes their hearts This is the Christian experience. When when we finally understand the gospel, when the penny falls, do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember having, even if you've been a Christian your whole life, I'm assuming there will have been moments where you just understood, you suddenly realised the significance of the blood of Jesus. Matthew describes this universal Christian experience of deep joy through these magi here as they encounter Christ with the light shone upon him. More than this, these wise men, they show us what it means for Jesus to be our king. They remind us that we all need to reignite an awe and a wonder of the person of Jesus, the king of kings, and then to open up all that we are, all that we own, our treasures, essentially, to him. And so if you're sitting here this morning, if you're feeling dry or distant, which I know is the experience of of many of us at the best of times, Perhaps a good step forward is to take a leaf out of the Magi handbook to follow the light, not of a star, but of the scriptures themselves which illuminate the face of Jesus. And perhaps some of you which are struggling even to do that, perhaps pray, ask for the Spirit to come into your heart and simply lean on Jesus, press into him, seek him, consider his value, Consider what he means for the world. You see, Jesus, he not only reveals the hearts of every person, but he fills us with ultimate purpose, with ultimate joy and satisfaction. doesn't mean we're necessarily going to be happy, but I guarantee you following Jesus gives us something that can't be quenched. 
to lean into him, bow down in wonder and adoration at who this man is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that sometimes we just don't know where to begin uh, when it comes to reigniting our hearts for you. Father, please send your spirit. Help us to hunger once again for your word. Lord, help us, like the wise men in this story, help us to consider you worthy of our treasures, our time, our efforts. And Father, wherever we're at, help us to sit in an amazement for who you are this week. Father, please help us in this we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.